in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the Tech Today podcast powered by CEO Raider. It's your host, John Mayetta. So how do private companies get valued going into the IPO? And this is sort of coming off of WeWork, the disaster, the IPO that wasn't. And one of the talking heads was saying, you know, how could the bankers value WeWork so highly? How could they go from a $47 billion valuation to 20-something to as low as 10? Well, it, it's a game. The, the, the bankers aren't dummies. In the old days when the bankers were allowed to talk to the research analysts, 2003, 2004, pre-Eliot Spitzer, the bankers could talk to their analysts and say, hey, you know, how, how do you think about valuation? And then the bankers themselves could come up with their own valuation. Typically when a company comes out, meaning tries to go public, you would figure out, okay, where in the comp universe does this company belong? What, what's, the, what's the peer group? And then you take a look at how those peer group companies are trading. So these are now public company valuations I'm talking about. So enterprise value to revenue, enterprise value to EBITDA, enterprise value to cash flow, enterprise value to X cash earnings. If the company's profitable, you would typically look at cash flow earnings and EBITDA. And that would give you a, a, a proxy for where these things trade in the public markets. And typically companies that in a particular industry vertical that are growing the fastest will be fastest from a revenue standpoint, booking standpoint, user growth. Those companies will have the, the highest valuation, all else held equal. If a company's profitable, that'll typically uh, warrant a valuation premium, all else held equal. Companies that continually meet and beat earnings, which is why we created the CEO Raider Earning Survival Toolkit last year. I think a lot of public companies, public company management teams don't appreciate, uh, a lot do, but there are a number that, that don't appreciate the importance of consistently meeting and beating numbers, both top line and bottom line. Because the, the, the street, the sell side and the buy side, they'll, they'll view companies that meet or beat earnings as quote-unquote quality companies and companies that miss numbers as problem children. And that will be reflected in the valuation. There'll be a big time differential between companies that, that meet numbers versus those that miss. Even if the company, let's say you have two companies in the same industry, share a lot of the same characteristics, similar growth profile, similar profitability. But let's say one company is, let's say one company is growing 25%, one company is growing 20%. Let's say they have similar profit margins, therefore the earnings are growing faster for the company who's growing revenues 25%. Let's say the company that's growing revenues 25% will miss two out of four quarters. They'll provide guidance. They'll provide guidance for the next, the upcoming quarter for the full year. Uh, so let's assume both companies provide a, a similar financial outlook, quote unquote guidance. But the company that's growing faster, the company that's growing 25% top line, let's say they miss two out of four quarters. And let's say the company that's growing a little bit slower, they're growing top line 20%, they never miss. Both companies have a high degree of recurring revenue, but one company really likes to, 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 to push the envelope in terms of being aggressive with their outlook. And therefore, you know, they may miss the top line a little bit. They may miss a, 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 a bookings number that the street was looking for a little bit. Maybe they miss earnings a little bit because they let sales and marketing get a little bit too high in a, in a particular quarter. So there's a chink in the armor, two out of four quarters, whereas the company that's growing more slowly never misses that company's going to trade at a higher multiple, a higher valuation multiple, the slower growing company that never misses, than the faster growing company that frequently has some issue with the reported numbers. So the analysts know this, the bankers know this. It's not too difficult to come up with a reasonable valuation for a company. What happens going into an IPO, particularly when you're talking about what were hot IPOs, Uber, 
prior to going out was highly competitive amongst the bankers. We work prior to going out was highly competitive amongst the bankers. And as the bankers jockey for position, what they like to do is throw out a, a, a valuation that's higher than the other bankers who are competing in the bake-off for the IPO in the hopes that that higher valuation will award them a better slot in the IPO roster. Maybe they'll become a co-lead. Maybe they'll become the lead. If I remember correctly, uh, I don't recall which bank, but one of the banks floated a valuation of $100 billion for Uber. I think, as I've said on the podcast, and as we've written at Tech Today a number of times, that Uber is worth very little. They don't have any real IP. They're messing around with their financial reporting in that they've pulled what I believe is a cost of revenue out of cost of revenue and dropped it down into opbacks. I think their real gross margin, Uber's real gross margin, is closer to 30%. And it's just going to be difficult for them to, at a 30% gross margin, to, number one, cross over to sustainable profitability, and more importantly, to develop any real intellectual property. That requires heavy investment in R&D. And if I recall, their R&D is at about 16% of, of revs. It needs to be to be higher if Uber is ever going to create a, a competitive moat. So I just don't think there's much value there. But at one time, the bankers floated $100 billion valuation. And I'm sure they didn't believe it. It's just hey, they're thinking, hey, if we float the highest number, maybe we'll, we'll be able to lead this deal. So the bankers know what they're doing when they value companies. They're self-aware. They're not dummies. They're trying to win the deal, win the IPO, win the lead slot on the on the IPO. And that by floating an artificially high valuation, they, they think that's going to curry favor with the, with the company, with the board. So that's what it's really all about. The banks have the incentive to get these deals done, obviously. IPO fees is a, becoming a, a larger component of investment banker revenue as, as uh, the institutional sales business continues to decline on a per unit basis. So that's that's the that's the black magic. It's a it's a it's a bogus formula. It's it's not a a true valuation in many cases that's assigned to these companies that that's that's floated pre-IPO. Now the markets can act as a as a gatekeeper of sorts. If you recall with WeWork, they try to go out at whatever it was, 47 or 49 billion initially. They did their road show, they got pushed back from the buy side. They said, "All right, we'll 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 trim it to 20 billion. Trim it." Or cut it in half, more like slash. That wasn't going to fly. It was rumored that they'd cut it, go to as low as, as $10 billion. At the end of the day, the buys had just wanted nothing to do with the, the company. They saw through that one. That was easy. And the former CEO didn't help the story. But the buy side could act, could act as a gating factor on the roadshow. And what happens, the buy side will take meetings with the company. They've done work. And they'll give feedback to the investment bankers and say, you know, we don't like the deal. We like the business, but maybe not at that price. Or we don't like that business at any price. In the case of WeWork, the, the smart investors didn't like that deal at any price. Now, when it's, when it's done right, and SoftBank are the ones that screw this up from the beginning because they, they put money in at outrageously high valuations from the beginning. So they're the ones that screwed it up and forced the public markets to, to cram down the valuation of WeWork. But typically the way this would work is let's say we have a, a group of a half a dozen companies in the public markets, and they're trading at X. Ideally, on the A round, there would be a private company discount. The venture investors would put in money at a discount to where the public companies are, are trading. B round money would come in a little bit higher, C round a little bit higher, D round a little bit higher, E round a little bit higher valuation. And then when it goes out, the IPO would be priced in and around where the peer group is, the public company peer group. 
And whether it's a little bit higher, or a little bit lower is a function of, you know, what, what's the track record. So if the company's been private for quite some time and is growing a little bit faster than the public companies, but maybe it's a little bit smaller company, you're probably going to come out at a, at a discount valuation to the peer group. If the private company is a, of a similar size to the public company peer group and it's growing faster, maybe margins are a little bit better, it's, it's going to come out at a, at, a, at a slight premium. And if it's sort of just growing in line with the peer group, maybe it's a little bit smaller company, no real differentiating factor from the peer group, then it's going to come out at a slight discount, which is typically the case. That's typically what you see. Companies that come out look a lot like the public companies that are already public in terms of business model and the, and the financials and the margins and the growth rate and all that stuff. And because they don't have a, a, a public company track record yet of, of meeting and beating numbers, the IPO will get priced at a, at a slight discount to the public company peer group. And that gives investors an opportunity to get in and make a little money, assuming that company, once public, starts to report numbers and consistently meets and beats numbers. So it gives you some room on the upside. That's how it, it, it typically should work. I think what's happened is a, is a couple of things. I think you've had venture investors in the past few years put money in at, at valuations that overvalue these companies. And that means one of two things, one of three things. It means an IPO doesn't get done, or it means that there's a cram down on the IPO. The valuation gets crammed down from the most recent private company round, or perhaps even crammed down from multiple rounds. Or a company gets out at a valuation that's too high. And we've seen some of those. You know, Uber would be one. Slack, in my view, would be one. I think, frankly, a lot of these IPOs, as of late, get done at prices that are too high. And I think some of the buy side is unsophisticated. I think a lot of the buy side is unsophisticated, no offense. But I think a lot of investors, particularly in tech, don't really understand tech at a granular level. They're thin. You know, the active management cohort of the buy side is having, you know, its lunch has been getting eaten for the past half dozen or so years, maybe a little bit longer uh, by passive investing. And so, you know, a lot of these guys are seeing assets rotate out of their funds, even when their funds are performing well. Analysts and portfolio managers, staffs are, are thin. They probably don't have enough resources for the amount of names they cover. I know that to be the case. And they feel like they're going to get left behind if they don't buy into these IPOs. So they buy in for the wrong reasons. They don't understand the companies and they do the deal. So that's a little bit of behind the scenes inside the sausage factory. See you all next time.